This is the Healthcare Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. No industry, including sick care, can be fixed from inside. Instead, they've responded to external stimuli. For every one hour that they spend on patient care, the thing that got them interested in medicine to begin with, they're spending up to two hours on EHR data entry. We're seeing a lot of great things, particularly around the ability to predict things that clinicians and consumers care about. Inhale, exhale. Time for your healthy dose. All right. Hello and welcome to the Market Scale Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for the show today. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up on this episode of the podcast, so I'm very, very happy that you have tuned in. Our correspondent, Shelby Skirhawk, has put together two great features for today's show. Coming up on the show today, we're going to be talking about how technology and healthcare are intersecting in ways that we haven't really seen before. And this technology is really changing the way that we think about how healthcare is being administered and what the future of the industry will look like. So, We're going to have two features, and on the first of which, we're going to talk about how education needs to change to include technological advancements. And in that conversation, we're going to talk to Jeffrey Holmes. He's a professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia, and he's going to talk about how connecting engineering and medicine will accelerate healthcare innovation. So that's the first feature coming up on today's show. The second feature is going to take a look at a better way to do online symptom checking, and that's going to be with Tony Dale and Andrew Lay of Bowie Health. And they're going to talk about how there just aren't enough emergency rooms and doctors to see every patient. So the solution isn't more emergency rooms. It's going to be to empower the patient with better information that they can bring to the table to help improve and speed up the process. So again, just taking two different aspects of how technology is changing the healthcare industry and talking about where that's moving in the future. So I think it's going to be an awesome show coming up today. We're going to start off with that feature looking at biomedical engineering with Professor Jeffrey Holmes from our correspondent Shelby Skirhawk coming up next on the Market Scale Healthcare Podcast. As the aging baby boom generation lives longer and stays active, the demand for biomedical devices and procedures is expected to increase. That means healthcare is relying on increasingly sophisticated devices for implanting into the body and monitoring it. We're talking about artificial heart valves, prosthetic hips, pacemakers, MRI machines, and the like. These are all examples of innovations that have emerged at the interface of engineering and medicine, something called biomedical engineering. Yet most med school grads are not versed in engineering. That needs to change, says Jeffrey Holmes from the University of Virginia. Holmes is a professor of biomedical engineering and sees how connecting engineering and medicine is going to help accelerate healthcare innovation. Jeff, what are some of the health issues that biomedical engineering is trying to solve? Some of the biggest ones are the ones that you mentioned uh, with an aging population. Uh, Two of the biggest ones for biomedical engineering are cardiovascular disease, which is our biggest killer in the Western world, and then uh, arthritis and other orthopedic problems, which are the biggest source of pain and disability. And so those have traditionally been the strongest areas uh, for biomedical engineering. And as you mentioned, also for, for some of the innovative devices that engineers have developed to address medical problems. 
So as the technology advanced, or I guess the, some of the, even the hardware has advanced to to make living better and, and easier, of course, the advancement of that technology is something beyond what's being currently taught in med school, right? That's true. And, um, and, and furthermore, now we're in this era of personalized medicine, where you hear a lot of people talking much more about customizing therapies to an individual patient rather than making a single device uh, or a single drug that's intended to treat everybody with a given illness. Um, and, and as we start to customize for those different patients, things like computational modeling and machine learning and artificial intelligence are going to be an increasingly important part of deciding which patient gets which treatment. And so those are things that, that really aren't taught in medical school at all. Well, personalized medicine is such a fascinating topic. What are some of the examples then of personalized medicine that are coming to the forefront you see in this interface between engineering and healthcare? I think a great example of that is the artificial pancreas. There are a number of people working on that, but one of the companies in Boston is called Beta Bionics. So for uh, children and adults who currently have diabetes, you know that they frequently have to check their blood glucose levels. And then depending on the glucose levels, they have to give themselves insulin shots. The idea of an artificial pancreas is that all of that would be integrated together so that there's a sensor sensing the blood glucose levels, and then there's a pump that's delivering insulin, and all of that can be automated. And obviously, the really critical part of a system like that is the algorithm that's making the decisions of when to inject the insulin. That has to be right. It has to work all the time, and it has to work under all conditions. So that's a case of customizing therapy for each individual person who has diabetes using computational models. One of the best is one called HeartFlow. And that's when they're actually making from a CT scan, they use the geometry of the coronary arteries of an individual patient. They make a model of blood flow for that specific patient, and they use the model to give the physician a measure of uh, that they can use to decide whether the arteries for that patient need to be treated with angioplasty, so with a balloon and a stent. And that judgment used to be made by an invasive measurement, and HeartFlow is now FDA approved that their computer model has replaced the invasive test. Going back to the the university model and, and basically looking at this this cross discipline approach, why isn't that already a common practice? Why is it that engineering and healthcare seemingly so separate in the in the current university setting? And and what needs to change? Yeah, it's really interesting. There there are two big reasons. Um, one is the traditional path that people take to be trained in engineering or medicine. In engineering, people usually start um, with a lot of physics and math early on and then stay in sort of more technically oriented courses. Um, with medical school, there's also science, but it tends to be more biology and chemistry. And often people will go on to medical school after majoring in liberal arts and other things that are unrelated to engineering. And so you end up with people who are, let's say they're in graduate school in engineering and then in medical school, who have really completely different training. And they've both learned very technical languages, but those technical languages are completely different. So it's like trying to speak a foreign language when they even talk to one another. So one aspect of this is just the communication and the vocabulary and the technical information that people learn during training. Another one is a little bit of an accident of how the university system was built in the United States. I grew up in the Midwest. 
Midwest and all across the Midwest and much of the country, uh, the universities were built where one university in a state would be the agriculture and engineering school and another university in the state would be the liberal arts and the medical school. And they're often located hours apart. But in this case, if the campuses are hours apart, then then you simply can't do that. Uh, and so, so these are two big barriers that, um, that we're trying to address at the University of Virginia with our Center for Engineering and Medicine. So then tell me about that program, because I understand it is one of the forefront in, in trying to merge these two, basically, or at least bring them closer together so you've got more complete uh, students coming out of this program. Yes, we, uh, we got a little lucky in one respect. We have a built-in advantage that our School of Engineering and our medical school are located on the same campus, uh, just a 10-minute walk apart. But really, the next thing we ask is, do we really need to give each person two degrees? In other words, it's possible for someone to go to engineering school and then go to medical school. And then you have someone who can speak both languages because they did full degrees in each. That's something that can be done. But the number of people that are going to be willing to do that and the time it's going to take to train them is going to be substantial. And so what we really asked was, is there a better way to teach people enough of each other's vocabulary and enough of each other's culture that they can work together effectively. And so, so that's what we're doing at the University of Virginia, where we're funding projects that are new collaborations between engineers and physicians and nurses. And then the students who are working on those projects come together to learn each other's vocabulary and they do what we call embedding. So they spend time in each other's environment. So we might have nursing students who are spending time in an electrical engineering lab learning about sensors that they're building that they can put in patients' homes. And the same students who are building those sensors will then go with the nursing students and meet patients in the hospital to understand what the needs of those patients are and how they're going to use the sensors in their own homes. So looking at the gap between what is coming out of the schools, comparing that to where we are today. So physicians that are working with some of these more advanced equipment, how are they dealing with advancement of these devices? It's um, one of the things about being a physician, especially in the United States, is the time pressures. I think it's one of the things that engineers don't really understand until they spend some time in a medical environment, how, how many patients physicians are seeing in a day and how quickly they, they have to work. And so the amount of time to learn new things, it, it's basically you know after hours and on weekends, and they devote a lot of time to doing it, but, but they have to keep up with what's the latest information on the medications they're prescribing. And so, so finding this additional time to also learn about new technologies is is certainly tough. Uh, it's much more realistic to teach them a little bit of vocabulary and then help them find collaborators that they can work with. What we find is that um, once the physicians can start that conversation with an engineer, they get really excited about the ideas and, and they're able to do a lot of fun things in partnership that they would never be able to do on their own. So what are the numbers and what's the need here? I mean, obviously we know that the, the baby boom generation is aging and, and we've got all of these devices that are needing engineers and, and physicians and people that are familiar with both camps. What's the status of biomedical engineers now? And how can we, I guess, how can we fill that gap? Yes. Yeah, so on the engineering side, we're doing a fairly good job. So in, uh, in the early 70s, there were only three or four programs in the country that offered an accredited degree in biomedical engineering. And that now that's well over 100 programs. And so for companies that are employing engineers, let's say, as you mentioned in the open, um, big device companies, imaging companies that are making MRI and CT scanners, there's a good supply now of engineers 
who have been trained in biomedical engineering, meaning that they also learn some of the biology and the physiology as undergraduates and are prepared to take those jobs. I think the limit, as we've talked about, uh, is more on the physician side, that there aren't as many physicians who have a technology education. And I think the main place that that shows its impact is not in the continued improvement of existing devices. I think, you know, we'll continue to have good artificial hips and knees and we'll continue to have improved scanners where that really comes in is innovation. Uh, and the reason for that is that I, I think, you know, a lot of engineers who set out to innovate in the healthcare space, they need those conversations with physicians, just like in any industry, you need conversations with potential customers and clients to understand what the needs are. That's the conversation that's hard to have unless physicians are in the loop. And that's the place that I think we need to see a lot more involvement and much earlier in the device and um, biomedical innovation process that the physicians are involved at the ground floor or in the discussions of what are the needs. So there at the University of Virginia, tell me about some of the things that uh, you and your students are, are talking about and learning about right now. Uh, we've seen some really exciting projects. So the we ask uh, for each project, it needs to be at least one engineer and at least one physician or nurse who are working together. And people have been coming up with all kinds of really exciting ideas. Um, we, we had a mechanical engineer who normally builds airflow sensors, and those could be used anywhere on jets or in heating and air conditioning systems. And he got to talking to one of the physicians who treats asthma and realized that one of the, the main things that they could do to improve monitoring of asthma was if they could actually sense airflow in somebody's airways. And so they're now working together to build miniaturized sensors that would not only be able to do that, but they would power themselves from the airflow so that they never need batteries, um, which is an, another um, exciting thing for a, a medical application because other devices like pacemakers periodically have to have their batteries changed and this one wouldn't need batteries at all. So, so that's an example of an idea that existed in another field that never would have been applied to medicine had our mechanical engineer not spoken with a physician who treats asthma. What's the outlook for, for your students there? I guess what, what excites them most about uh, going into this field? And, and I guess what's, what do you think their why is? It's really the sense of mission. Um, for any of our students who are working on senior design projects or other projects um, that might be the ones we're funding from engineering and medicine or might be their own, their own research in their labs, um, when they get to go into the clinical environment and see the patients that they're actually going to be helping with something that they're building, it really just changes their perspective about everything. And so I, I think for all of us at work, a sense of mission is an important thing. And it, it's really easy to have that sense of mission when you can see patients who are benefiting from the work that you do. For MarketScale Healthcare, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Thanks again to Shelby Skirhawk, our correspondent there, and to Professor Jeffrey Holmes from the University of Virginia. It's really interesting talking about where the real problem-solving and innovation is happening, as Holmes says, is in that intersection of engineering and medicine, two fields that maybe we didn't traditionally think of as being able to combine. But as we get smarter using these various tools, uh, we can certainly use them and apply them to the healthcare industry. So very interesting conversation there. 
All right, coming up next, we're going to take a look at a better online symptom checker, and we're going to talk to Andrew Lay and Tony Dale of Bowie Health. Andrew Lay is the founder and CEO, and Tony Dale is their chief revenue officer. And we're going to look at a way just to build a better online symptom checker for people so they have more information that they can be armed with when they go into emergency rooms or doctor's offices. There's obviously a limit on how many doctors we can have, how many hospitals that we can build, uh, but if we give people more information when they go in uh, to those doctor's offices or to hospitals, it can certainly speed up the process by which they can be helped and brought back to full health. So Andrew is going to say the solution is not to build more emergency rooms or to get as many doctors as we can on the phone. The solution is going to be to empower the patient with as much information as possible. So we're going to learn more about how technology is helping Bowie Health in this endeavor and how they're innovating in this space in the healthcare industry. So again, we're going to turn to our correspondent, Shelby Skirhawk, for this next interview coming up next on the Market Scale Healthcare Podcast. So I want to get to talking about Bowie's AI health assistant, but first, um, Andrew, will you tell me a little bit about how and why Bowie was founded? Sure, I'd be happy to, Shelby. So um, the origin story was uh, I was doing my last rotation in the in medical school um, up here at Harvard uh, before going off to do a career in, in neurosurgery, and my last rotation happened to be in the emergency room, and I was doing these twenty four on twenty four off calls. And I was seeing patients middle of the night who were coming in, having read something, having Googled their symptoms, read something from WebMD or Yahoo Answers, getting scared and then doing the wrong thing. And that wrong thing was either they're coming in when they shouldn't have, or worse, they got scared and decided to wait. And in waiting, things got worse. They got sicker and we had to do something more drastic to help them. And then right around then, my dad got sick. Uh, he had a mini stroke. Um, he didn't go to the doctor. Uh, when I asked him, you know, why didn't you ask, uh, why didn't you call me? He said, you're working. I was like, why didn't you Google it to figure out what to do? And he said, what am I going to find on Google? And for me, that was this emotional tipping point that led me to leave. Um, so I took a sabbatical from school and started Bowie with three other people. Uh, and we really became obsessed with this concept of the care decision to be defined as, you know, when you're sick, what do you do? You know, do you go to, to the ER? Do you go to urgent care? Do you go to a specialist? Do you go to primary care? walk-in clinic, you know, there's just a plethora of options for patients. And people at the end of the day just don't really know where is most appropriate. And so in building our AI health assistant, that was the problem we were really trying to That's solve. That's an interesting idea, the care decision, because I think you, you hit it on the nail absolutely, is that one, people don't understand their symptoms, but two, they don't know where to start and how to even is this ER level emergency? Is this wait and see? I can absolutely see where that that need came from. Tell me a little bit about how the actual um, interface works. Sure. Um, as you said, when you started it, it actually tries to mimic a conversation that you might have with your doctor. So just like a doctor asks questions to drill down on what might be going on and then help you figure out what to do, Similarly, our program asks questions and the way it, it works is it first, you know, asks you about your symptoms and your demographics and then says, okay, of the 30,000 questions that are possible, which one is statistically most helpful? It's going to ask that question. Patient's going to answer it. And then in real time, 2,500 diagnoses and 30,000 questions get re-ranked and the next best question gets asked. And after about two or three minutes of this back and forth, we narrow the world of diagnoses down to a maximum of three 
reasons for and against each diagnosis, and then what triage or what type of care is appropriate Mm -hmm. for the patient. So the big question then is like, how do we build this? Because obviously if it doesn't work, then this is completely pointless. So we actually built Bowie from the ground up. So we actually read over 22,000 clinical papers. Uh, An example of a clinical paper would be, you know, uh, there's a paper that looked at the relationship between smoking and pneumonia and found that smoking increases the risk of pneumonia by a factor of four. And another paper showed that people who have pneumonia have a fever 90% of the time. So by reading that basic research, we were able to teach the program. So it's kind of like a doctor had read those 22,000 clinical papers, remembered them, and then was able to pull those statistics in real time when they're talking. It's the same type of statistical um, understanding of medicine that underlies the the algorithm. So that's a lot of data to have to process. So, Tony, tell me about the the monumental task in trying to wrangle all of this data into a, a machine learning um, health assistant. Right. Well, I think some of the things that uh, were mapped originally really are, is the backbone for or how it uh, operates today. So by mapping those 22,000 clinical papers, essentially what the team did was build a statistical map of medicine. And that statistical map of medicine is the engine that helps re-rank those 30,000 questions. So uh, as you might imagine, hand mapping those uh, statistics uh, by diagnosis type was quite a monumental task. And Andrew can uh, attest to the, the late hours and the monumental amount of work as a matter of fact, um, you know, it was just uh, March of 2017 that uh, Bowie launched a public-facing uh, application. Uh, over the last four years or so, uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into hand mapping and perfecting that algorithm. But as, as you note, um, it was quite a monumental task, but it really started with a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears and uh, individuals mapping those statistics into the algorithm. What was the importance or the significance of a human touch to this versus being able to leave it to statistics or analysis? I mean, you mentioned the the term statistical map of medicine. Did anything like this already exist? So the the reason why we took this such a painstaking road um, was that the original, this original data largely didn't exist in the right format. So you could imagine doing something a little bit different where you had a body of data and then using that data did some fancy machine learning to then understand medicine based off of that data. The classic way of thinking about this would be to take electronic medical records, uh, which is what your doctor writes into you know, when they're, when they're interviewing you and, and chronicling what happens, is to take that EMR data and then build an algorithm on top of that to read all of those notes that your doctor wrote to then understand medicine. The big problem with that approach, though, is that patients don't talk like doctors. So unless, you know, all of a sudden patients started talking like doctors, if you train a program on how doctors talk, there's almost this Rosetta Stone problem. There's this translation problem where it can't turn around and then all of a sudden reasonably chat with a patient. So again, going back to the original problem we're trying to solve, we're really looking to help patients make better decisions in order to understand how people present with, diag- with symptoms and diagnoses and what their risk factors are, we looked at, okay, where in the world is there 
data that we could actually cleanly understand. And that kind of boils down to the primary research that I talked about at first, which really goes into textbooks. And then our, those textbooks are read by medical students who then become doctors. And so the, the way that your doctor understands that, hey, you know, this person has a fever, it's more likely that they have a bacterial infection than a viral infection. That knowledge actually all boils back down to some primary research that was done by someone else. So we said, you know what, why don't we unlock that data by having doctors like myself literally read the paper and then turn it into something, an electronic understanding of that paper, and then pull paper after paper together such that there was a massive electronic understanding of medicine that, again, is kind of like a doctor having read those papers and memorized all of it. So right. in thinking about these different approaches, um, we, we basically said, how do you not take a shortcut? And that was the, the route we took. You know, Tony alluded to us releasing a public-facing product back in March of last year, but we founded the company in 2013. So it really took us four years of hard work to pull all this together to test it in a clinical setting. Uh, we actually ran a clinical trial in an urgent care where we saw hundreds of patients in the waiting room, had them use Bowie and then see their doctor. And then we compared what the doctor said with what we had said. And we agreed with the doctor's diagnosis 90.9% of the time, which had never been done before um, at the time. So it, it has required a ton of work, um, but we think the payoff is a lot of patients today are making better decisions about their health. So two follow-ups to that. One inherent problem that I think doctors and healthcare professionals would agree on is the patient vocabulary, basically, for explaining their symptoms. Whether, you know, you may have opinions of whether or not you do want somebody coming in going, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm presenting with flank pain, <laughs> but it's obviously there's going to be different levels of description and the quality of, of symptom identification, basically, like being able to identify what's wrong and what's happening. I guess, how do you mitigate that challenge uh, with patients not really being able to explain what they're feeling very accurately? That is such a great question, uh, Shelby. So you're, you're actually really digging into our own strategy um, in that the variability of how patients describe their symptoms is something that A, you're absolutely right, doctors all talk about and know about, but B, is a major barrier to a program like ours actually working when you, when you think about the differences between the way people might take a question or might you know, describe their symptoms. And to answer your question, the only way that you can solve this is with a significant amount of patient data on how they describe their symptoms and answer questions. There is no shortcut to getting to this. And it's really similar to how there's no shortcut to doctors actually having a lot of experience seeing patients and seeing the variability of how patients will de describe their flank pain and to be able to understand, oh, you know, this is this, you know, odd way of talking about this is a uh, reflection of flank pain. Similarly, the reason why we released a public-facing version of Bowie back in March, it's a free version of Bowie that, that anyone can, can use. If we had gone the pure B2B route and we had sold Bowie to every single hospital, every single insurance company, every single employer in the United States, we would not get enough usage and not get enough data to solve for the variance of how patients talk about their symptoms. So we released this free product so that we could learn that 
so that we could actually build something in the long term that could adjust for people's variability in how they talk about themselves. So kind of our user growth, since by the end of last year, we hit about 3 million unique visitors um, on buoyhealth.com. This year, we're on pace for about 30 million. And so with each user, we're now capturing different ways in which people are talking about their symptoms. And that machine learning that um, we uh, you described at the beginning of the show is really uh, to evolve buoy to fit the variations in how patients are talking, how patients are deciphering their questions, and how they're perceiving their own symptoms and risk factors. So it's it's a major part of our strategy, and it's the only way that um, you can build something that actually. And, uh, Shelby, why I'm so excited about our prospects is that. When you think about the application of AI in healthcare right now, there are a lot of uh, efforts and a lot of companies and solutions that are focused more on the provider side or the physician side of the AI model. And, and all of those efforts are incredibly important, but they do have the benefit of working with the same nomenclature and the same set of data, uh, which is consistent. And so that the problem that they're solving for might even be considered a little easier than what we're trying to tackle, which is the huge variance that Andrew just described in how patients describe their symptoms, but also their uh, level of education and understanding about their symptoms and about what they're reading. And, and I say this because coming from, you know, more than 10 years at WebMD, we did some wonderful things to be able to democratize information and get health information into the hands of, of consumers to make good decisions. But w- one thing we could never solve for was the huge variance in levels of education and understanding of symptoms, but also personality types. Those who um, can look at the same data as another person and make a completely different care decision. So that's uh, you know part of the implication of, of what we're doing here is trying to normalize those things to create better outcomes. I can definitely see the immense challenge, uh, but WebMD being one of the, the larger players, I mean, you search online symptom checkers and WebMD is the the first result there, but not, not to disparage your, your former employer, but one thing that I guess I'm seeing the difference between Bowie Health and WebMD is the level of detail that it goes into. Actually, right before the show, I got on and I tried the interface and it is very detailed and uh, it goes a lot more uh, in depth than I would have expected and that I've seen from any other online symptom checker. So I read that you recently partnered with CVS Health and their Minute, uh, Minute Clinic subsidiary. So Tony, how is that going to, I guess, bring this more to the masses? And, and I guess, how is this all going to work? Right. Uh, great question, Shelby. So we're very excited uh, for the partnership that uh, we've initiated with CVS. Um, and for CVS, their minute clinics are an important part of their strategy. And so when you think about the primary care landscape, uh, minute clinic type encounters are part of the solution uh, to the challenge that we have in this country, which is a lack of uh, enough primary care physicians uh, to service the need. And so what we're doing in our initial use case is being able to utilize the buoy tool to be able to engage uh, consumers that come to buoyhealth.com, and Andrew mentioned that's about 3 million and growing about a 30% monthly compounded growth rate. We're able to educate a consumer who may have a specific uh, type of uh, likely diagnosis and be able to triage them uh, to a minute clinic where they may not have thought about a minute clinic previously. They may have sought uh, more expensive care, be it an ER or maybe a specialist but realizing that there's a minute clinic in their neighborhood 
and connecting them with something that's convenient and appropriate uh, and lower cost to what they may have chosen. So my um, the other follow up question to uh, to what you had said before, Andrew. Uh, so all of the time and um, information that went into the I guess these maps, uh, statistical maps of, of medicine with all of that data read and entered and processed. I'm just curious, though. I mean, does that information get outdated? Like, do these medical diagnoses, do they evolve or change? Or is that information pretty well standard? That's a really good question. I, I would say that the majority of um, information around the, the link between risk factors and diagnoses and symptoms is relatively stable. There's a lot of new papers that come out usually around treatment changes or testing changes, which are kind of more on the forefront of, uh, of where we're headed. Not to say that there aren't new diagnoses that appear, not to say that there aren't new risk factors that have been identified. Um, so examples of that, you know, when we started reading Zika was not around. But because you have the framework for how you cover new diagnoses, how you model them, uh, it's relatively simple for us to say, oh, you know, Zika is becoming a thing that um, is being seen more often. Let's go ahead and model that out. Um, it doesn't take a significant amount of time. And we do have an internal medical team that is constantly looking at improving our model by uh, ingesting more uh, literature. Now, that being said, the real key, though, is in that machine learning, it is not only adjusting for the variability that we've been talking about. It also is actually that data in reality is more valuable and more insightful than the original data that we had fed it in that it is now adjusting for all of these different factors uh, over time automatically and thus is actually a better view into how patients are describing their symptoms, what risk factors they have and what diagnoses they're ended up getting diagnosed with. Um, is, it's probably better, honestly, than the clinical literature itself just given the size of the population. So on any given day or any given week, we're seeing about a million people um, hit the site. Uh, if you look at any individual clinical study, you know, you're very happy with a few hundred people. So just in terms of the, the uh, matter of scale, um, the data that's coming in is there's more of it right. and it's clean and it is constantly improving the algorithm, which is really exciting. Andrew, something that you've you had mentioned in our kind of pre-interview, uh, you said something about that you were disillusioned by how late in the patient journey that doctors could help. How is this going to revolutionize that problem? Well, if you think about it, there's honestly not enough doctors, there's not enough nurses, there's not enough PAs in the world, period. So unless we all of a sudden sent every single man, woman, and child to school to teach them about their bodies and teach them about medicine, it would be impossible to have enough experts on earth to help triage every single patient the second that they were sick. And so I was seeing that in the emergency room where, you know, I'm seeing these patients, they are either there inappropriately, wasted their time, wasted money, someone was paying for this, or worse, they were, you know, actively endangering their own lives. My dad was actively endangering his own life. Because at the end of the day, they're just, they're just not enough emergency rooms or not enough doctors to see every single patient the second they get sick. And so the solution here is not to, you know, continue to build more emergency rooms. The solution is not to, you know, get as many doctors on the telephone. 
The solution is to empower the patient. The solution is to build something that is infinitely scalable, that can bring the information into a digestible format that patients can understand and use themselves in order to make better decisions. So when I say I was disillusioned by how late in the journey the, the doctor was coming on board, I was really seeing the patient at least 72 hours after they originally had symptoms. What happened in that first three days? That was completely up to the whims of their decision. It was the whims of what they read online. It was to the whims of what their mom said they should do. I mean, we should move beyond what people are reading on forums and what their mom says. Inter- I mean, I-, I love my mom. <laughs> she didn't go to medical school, you know? So like right. besides her experience raising two, you know, two other kids, my other siblings, that's, that's not a lot of data to go off of. We need something better. And that's uh, why I'm so passionate. I think that's why we are so enthusiastic about our mission and, and what our impact could be for the world. Andrew, Tony, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Thanks, Shelby. Shelby. Well, thank you again to Shelby Skirhawk for that look at a better online symptom checker. And thank you to Andrew Lay and Tony Dale for joining the podcast once again today. Thank you to everyone that's been a part of this episode. Thank you to Jeffrey Holmes, the professor from University of Virginia that joined us for that first feature earlier today. Thank you to Shelby Skirhawk, our correspondent, who really had a, a major hand in putting together this episode. And thank you to Andrew Lay and Tony Dale as well from Bowie Health. We really appreciate everyone that helped put this episode together. Thank you to Zach Brummett, who is doing the editing on today's podcast, putting together the music making sure it sounds wonderful. I've been your host, Tyler Kern. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Market Scale Healthcare Podcast. But until then, we hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon.